We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Welcome to the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast. And welcome to the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast. This is me and Lean from ArsenalVision.co.uk. Uh, apologies for what's likely to be a slightly funky sound. Um, I'm recording from a completely new system. And I have no microphone. So um probably going to sound very echoey and all that sort of good stuff. But what can you do? What can you do? In today's show, Elliot, James and Tim will be discussing their nil-nil draw away to Sunderland. Good times. Um... In all honesty, I've slightly lost a bit of interest um, in our season. Uh, ever since the West Ham's 2-2 draw, when, um, yeah, that was that was the end of our very, 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 very slim title hopes. I've sort of mentally given up with it, really, which is uh, quite a sad thing to say for me, because I'm normally very obsessive about the games and um, making sure I watch every minute of the game, and I just found myself a bit sort of not interested in parts of it, which is really, really sad, um, on my part anyway. So, I'm going to hand you to the guys to talk about the game in far more detailed analysis than I can. Uh, so, enjoy the podcast, and back after the next one. Heartbreaking result leaves season in tatters. But enough about Tottenham. This is the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast. My name is Elliot Smith, and you can block me on Twitter at Yankee Gunner. I am joined as ever by Tim. You can find him on Twitter at Stilberto. Hello, Tim. Hello there. Good to be back. Yeah. Uh, we will discuss nothing but Tottenham's draw with West, Ham, uh, West Brom. I can think of no other topic which requires discussion, if that's all right with you guys. Um, and I am also joined, as always, by Paul. You can find him on Twitter at Pause and in My Pants. Hello, Paz. 
Yeah, well, yeah. I, if that's in relation to Tottenham, then sure, why not? Um, yeah, they want, apparently, they've been so happy finishing behind us for 20 years that they want uh, Arsene Wenger to stay. So, there you go. Um, anywho, let's dive into it. It's a nil-nil at Sunderland. It was pretty drab, pretty dire. Um you know, you can talk about all the cliches like effort and energy. You can talk about more specific stuff. And we'll get into all of that. But let's start with the starting 11. And, Tim, I'll start with you. Um, he picked the same 11, and it's kind of got a feeling right now that the manager is so lost in trying to find the solution that any team that wins gets to be the team for the next game. Um, yeah. Were you surprised to see him stick with Giroud in particular, and do you get the sense that even Arson right now is grasping at the straws of what might be his best 11? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it doesn't it doesn't look like he's really got a clue what it is, you know, to play Gabriel for so long. And I can understand, like, against West Brom, there being a measure of rotation because, you know, we've got three games in a week for the last time in the season. And, you know, there, there has to be a certain amount of freshness there and using your squad. And, they, you know, they're players like Pierre Mertesacker and Olivier Giroud in the ordinary run of things are not bad players to bring in. Um, even if you don't think they should be first choice, they're you know perfectly decent as squad players at the very, very least. Um, I didn't understand the team staying the same. I don't think Olivier Giroud really did enough against West Brom to keep his place. I think one goal in his last 20 Premier League games is not and, you know, the thing is, I, I can only imagine that there's he's managing Dan, Danny Welbeck, and I don't know if he's got some data or something about perhaps his, his amount of running dropping off and he just wants to look after him a little bit. Um, that's the only kind of, only a reason in that area. That's the only good reason I can think of not to have played Danny Welbeck. Just to play Even, devil's advocate with so few games left in the season, unless the fear is a true major relapse, like, you know, totally doing mm. his knee again. Um, do, is it really worth worrying about that? I mean, let's, I let's only, just assume he's not saving him for England because no, I don't even want to countenance that possibility. I mean, only if he's, if he fears like a recurrence of, of the actual knee injury, which would be pretty tragic and would have, you know, long-term consequences. Um, if he just feared like a little muscle injury or something, then no, I don't think that's a a, a decent enough reason. But again, it's, it's and to difficult. be fair, I mean, he hasn't mentioned it for a little while, but I think Tim could be onto something because he did. I mean, Arson did say he was worried about his knee, not about his fitness, but his knee. He hasn't said it for a couple of weeks, but mm. you don't know. There could be it could be one of those inflamed things that as as Tim says, they're managing. And, and, and I, it's not that I know, because I don't, obviously, but what I see is he rotated him out of the squad on Thursday with an eye towards not playing him twice in four days, and then the yeah. team played well enough with Giroud in it, and he's so desperate to find a solution that he stuck with what worked. I mean, isn't, isn't that kind of how it, how it felt? It, it did, kind of, yeah, and I, I never really understood that because, you know, Giroud is bang out of form, is, you know... The thing is, we've had Olivier Giroud for four years. We know what he can do. We know what he can't do. We know when he's confident. We know when he's not confident. And, you know, he's clearly not confident at the moment. And it just brought all of the predictability back into our play. It just made us very easy to defend against. And, I, you know, I want to be cautious about pinning that all on Giroud because, like I say, we know what type of player he is. We know what he offers and what he doesn't offer. 
Um, and so expecting him at 29 years old, having been here for four years, to suddenly become a different player and do a different thing is, is you know, it's not reasonable. And um, what, what I've found, and, and, you know, like playing player Mertesacker as well, it, it does seem a bit weird to be convinced enough by Gabriel to give him this run and then to take him out for two games. It, it seems like he hasn't, he's not really convinced of who to play there at all. I think um, the thing is for me that I've, found disappointing was I was so in the, I don't get me wrong I thought it was too late I was very enthused after Everton and Watford and even the first half an hour against West Ham I thought ah we're on to something with this attack now you know we've got Elneny in midfield we've got a team that presses high we've got a team that forces turnovers and you look at some of the goals we'd scored in those games um, Iwobi against Everton Within six seconds of, of Everton attacking, we had the ball in their net. Our first goal against Watford, the Alexis uh, goal, where he, he headed down the Iwobi's cross, that was within six seconds of Watford having the ball. Coquelin makes an interception nice and high up, heads the ball to Iwobi, ball's in the net. Um, and we did something similar against West Ham, I think, for Ozil's goal. You know, West Ham have the ball, and within four seconds, we've got it in their net. And, and, um, and against Crystal Palace as well, Welbeck wins the ball high up, we have it in their net. And that's something I think we've been really bad at this season and it explains why some of our like XG numbers or, or whatever, I know that's becoming a, a faddy kind of statistic, but why they look so bad. Because defences are well set when we attack and goalkeepers are well set when we shoot. So actually the chances aren't as good as the numbers make them look. And it really looked like we'd come up with a solution. And, and I thought, well, it's probably too late. But, you know, this is quite positive. And then, you know, against Sunderland, we kind of somehow decided to go back to this, you know, dreadfully slow side-to-side passing and, you know, complete lack of movement up front. And I, I just don't understand why we did it. And I almost think that, as you know, as much of a funk as he's in at the moment, there would have been a a better excuse to play Theo Walker up front and just say, well, look, you're saying, you know, obviously the manager is not happy with him at the moment. That's really coming through in his comments and rightly so. And, you know, almost like trying to create that meritocracy again and just saying to Walcott, right, I gave Giroud his chance on Thursday. Well, Beck's, you know, well, I don't want to risk him. So here's your chance now. Um, and you know, I don't know. It just it just seems like everything's really petering out, and the manager's just trying to do something, anything, and that he doesn't really. I was going to say have a clear plan anymore, but I'm not really sure what the clear plan has been for the last eighteen months or so. So mm-hmm. it, it was a bit of a it's a bit of a drudge, really. Yeah, I mean, it's not a lot of fun right now, and I just I think that. The, the players themselves don't look like they're having a ton of fun out on the pitch, and we'll, we'll get to that. Um, Paul, another um, sort of new innovation that he stuck with for the second game running was the Ramsey-Elneny midfield. Uh, what was your assessment of that, um, having seen it now a second time? Well, it seems, it, well, it was a bit more tested than the first time. I think that was my get-out clause in the first the first showing of it, we didn't really see it under pressure. Uh, in this, it, the midfield was a little bit more contested. Um, I thought it did pretty well. So uh, I'd diverge a little bit from you guys' opinion um, on the game in the first half. 
uh, in that I thought overall our movement to the ball was very good. Um, I, the closer we got to the, the final third, or I'd say even the final sixth, if that's a thing, the more I agree with, with your point or your points uh, regarding how, what a return to darkness we, we uh, encountered. Um, and probably, you know, the Giroud factor in that final sixth was a big piece of that. Um, you know, we had a lot of good play in that first half, but the quality and decision-making, and uh, I wouldn't quite put it as finishing because we didn't really get a lot to finish. Um, that last piece of it, that last pass, that last, uh, that last touch was really what cost us in the first half. I mean... Um, I went back and watched it a second time, and uh, oh, oh. <laughs> how were you, were you on speed or amphetamines or something? How did you get through it? It was really painful. I haven't I haven't got to the second half. I watched the first half, and when you listen I, to, to, the to be fair, by the way, I do agree with you that if yeah. you're comparing the two halves, there was a little more energy and more. dynamism yeah. for the first half. And because I, think... I just remembered the whole game as us not being, you know, I was going to say, oh, we weren't front-footed, we weren't proactive, we weren't willing or winning the challenges. Well, that's just not true in the first half. Well, I got to 40 minutes of the game. It's fr- certainly not true in the 40, first 40 minutes. They did hit the bar, though, and have some chances. I mean, it's, you know, I would, I yeah, would argue that, that we could have been set... behind, too. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Don't get me wrong. It wasn't, it wasn't entirely a purple patch for us. Right. But it mostly was. I mean, that was a one-off free kick, and they got a couple of corners. I mean, you'd expect that in 45 minutes. And, you know, it could be my bias, but I listen to the commentators, and they're purring. They're saying things like uh, great ball movement, player movement. Uh, They're talking about, uh, you know, Sunderland not seeing the ball, et cetera, et cetera. You know, those comments are are spattered through it. Now, really interestingly, uh, Adrian Clark did his bit and talked about how static we were in the final third. And uh, when I watched the breakdown, I'm like, oh, yeah, 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 that's that's what I saw. So that's what I went back to see in this game. And that moment actually occurs in the first half. It's like around 27 minutes. But just before it is some really good play, just after it is some really good play. And I think the narrative becomes true the longer the game goes on. But if you take our first our first half, it's a good half. It's just that final sixth where we pretty much suck. And Ollie's keeps doing this thing where he tries to play the ball with his wrong... You know, if the balls play to his wrong foot in a good position, he'll try and hit it with his good fit with, foot, which is on the wrong side of it. And it's just... It's so frustrating at the moment because he knows he's out of form. The man, I mean, to you guys' point, the manager is the first to say that his confidence is in the shitter and he hasn't scored for forever and it's affecting him. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. So, so <laughs> why are we playing him? Well, yeah. I mean, you'd have to ask the manager at that. I mean, the reason we're playing him is because he thinks Theo is even more shit. <laughs> and apparently something's yeah. wrong with Welbeck or, you know, I, again, I, I look, everybody loves their own opinion, but I think because the manager is so confused by this team right now and finding it so hard to, to get it going in the right direction consistently, I think when he puts a lineup out there that gets a win and looks even decent, his only solution is to just put that lineup out there again. Um, and I think that this was a case of 
things worked reasonably well against West Brom, so he's not going to change a winning formula when there's been so few winning formulas the second half of this season. Um, yeah, and let me just add to that. I mean, you know, his take on it was it was a good first half, if I, if I remember right. We should have scored in the first half. I think in terms of general play, he's right. We should have scored in the first half. But in terms of actual really good chances created, you know, we had uh, a, a little purple patch where, you know, Alexis and Iwobi were taking it in turns to take pot shots on goal that were all batted away. Uh, I think starting with his free kick, Alexis's free p- kick. But outside of that, really, that final sixth uh was our the weakest part of our game. The rest of our game was pretty decent, but I don't think we should have trotted in at halftime with a goal. So, yeah, it's you know I, I think it's t- it's difficult because you and I are the same in this respect, Paul. We were so frustrated by the way we were playing in January and February, and I think Tim, you would agree with this. It was so ponderous. There was no cohesion in midfield. Everything was coming from the fullbacks or you know long balls from from the center backs. There really was no build up coming through midfield, and so when we're able to bring the ball through midfield, when we're able to maintain possession and, and complete a few passes in the, into the opposition half, it feels like huge improvement um, because of where we mm-hmm. were at the sort of the nadir of our of our season, which was sort of the January, February, early March period. I think the midfield was is better now, and I think Elneny has made a big difference. Um, you know, you look at him again, and he completed 95.4% of his 87 passes, um, you know, which is obviously excellent. Um, I believe, if I'm correct, and I'll just double check this now. Yet yeah, he had no, he was not dispossessed. He had no unsuccessful touches. So you know, you look you're looking at a player who's busy, who's active, who's involved, who's on the ball, and who takes care of the ball, um, and who was getting forward. You'll remember his one twos up the right where yep. he was into the box, and Giroud's uh, flick to him was just a little short. But I mean, he was through and on goal. And he did another shot on goal from the corner of the box very shortly after that. So he was getting into positions. Yep. Um, so I think you're right. I, I think the. So and let me remind you there's one other thing I want to talk. There was a beautiful little passage of play with Ramsey uh, from the, the bottom left kind of midfield, playing it up to uh, Iwobi. Back to Ramsey, to Giroud, knocks it across to Alexis Sanchez. And this is the... So a beautiful series of play just would have been a wonderful goal. He's got Ramsey to his right. Remember we crucified... Sorry, he's got Ozil to his right. Remember we crucified Ramsey for not passing to his right and taking on a stupid fucking shot that was never going in. Mm-hmm. Do we remember all that? Yeah. I think it was the West Ham yeah. game. I remember. Fuck me. Yeah. So... That's what I mean about decision making and choices, and what could have been. I think we did a lot of that in that final sixth. I think but... Tim has touched on this too, Paul. I think the players are really pressing in the final third now, and there's a lack of confidence and composure. Yeah. Um. And and a lack of willingness to step up and and be the right player for the right moment. Um. You see it in Hector Bellerin's crossing, by the way. I mean, he gets into yeah. a good position on the right and just slaps at the ball like it's a scorpion. He's trying to get away from him. Um. I think his his level has really dropped, and that's to be expected. He's 21. He's playing every match. Um, the same could be said of, of Iwobi. I thought he struggled to impose himself a little bit in this game. That's another example of, of man management, Tim, that I'm kind of curious to get your thoughts on. 
Here's a guy in Awobi who's 19 years old, who's not in the squad for the first half of the season. He gets a chance to come in, and now he's the savior, and he plays every game, and he plays twice in a week, and and you know he's undroppable. Has the manager maybe mishandled that a little? Would this have been an opportunity to say to Awobi, "All right, you played enough. We'll use you as a super sub, but you know, let's get a, a Joel Campbell in there or switch it up somehow. Maybe move." Um, Ramsey back to the wing and and play a Coughlin on any midfield, but just get Awobi out of the out of the the heat of the fire, the firing line right now because he's. I thought he struggled to impose himself on this match like he had in previous matches. I think um, I, I thought he was excellent for the first twenty twenty five minutes when, That's when yeah. the team yeah. were, and yeah, he he kind of struggled after that because Arsenal fell into this insipid sludge of. Nobody moving, and I, I think that affected a few players. I think it certainly affected Ramsey as well, for example. Mm-hmm. And um, um, we, we may get onto it later, but I had a completely different impression of his performance compared to people who are watching at home, I think. Well, let's talk about it. Look, it's your, my... it's your podcast. Why don't you tell me, because I, I saw some of the Twitter d- discussions, and I know that you feel that Ramsey is one of those players who people have their opinion ready at the beginning of the match. So th- there's yeah. a lot of confirmation bias there, and and I think that's true. But what did so, so I'll just quickly tell you what I saw from Ramsey, then you tell me why you really uh, what you saw in his performance that you like. Because mm-hmm. I see a player who doesn't necessarily know his role right now. So this game, I mm-hmm. thought he was more disciplined positionally. And if yeah. you look at his heat map, it really occupies the ten yards into our own half, the 10 yards on either side of the midfield stripe, okay? Which is kind of where you'd expect your central midfielder to do most of their work. And yet we tend to think of Ramsey as a player who's going to be most effective 25 yards and in, right? Where he can play tricky little incisive passes on the edge of the box, where he can shoot, where he can score. And so right now he looks like a player who's debating between playing within himself and trying to get forward, and I'm not sure... He knows his role, and I see that hesitation in his game. Um, it's better than when he was just positionally all over the place in February and January, but I'm not sure we're getting the most out of him. So that's my take on it. Uh, mm. Go ahead, defend your boy. <laughs> yeah, no, I, 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 th- I think that's absolutely right. I, I think there's a large element to which, particularly with Elneny in the team as well, who's not strictly a defensive midfielder, that he's been told to do that. Um, and that, you know... There's there's an element to which I, I completely agree with your assessment. By the way, there, there's an element to which he can't really win. Um, and I remember when we played Stoke in January, he played exactly the same. And um, because it was just after we'd drawn three all with Liverpool and he'd scored a goal, but you know he'd been a bit kamikaze that night and not really protect helped to protect his centre halves. Um, and then we went to Stoke on the Sunday and he was much more measured, much more disciplined, but we didn't score a goal. And a lot of that was because he's a decent goal threat, but he wasn't getting forward. And I think that kind of happened on Sunday as well at Sunderland. I think that he he was measured and he was disciplined because he's been told to be, because he understands that the guy next to him does like to get forward as well. And that actually, they seem to me already to have struck up a nice understanding about who sits and who goes. Like, I can't remember too many occasions or any occasions where they were both up. Mm-hmm. Uh, or even where they were both back when they didn't need to be, perhaps. But particularly if you're playing Olivier Giroud up front, I think actually against a defence like Sunderland's, um, and Sunderland were always going to play like that, it might have been a better idea if we got the more kamikaze Ramsey. 
um, on Sunday to, you know, help run on to some of those balls that Olivier Giroud was trying but failing um, to find teammates with and just to help our movement a little bit. Um, with regards to Awobi, I mean, personally, I'd like to keep him going till the end of the season. However, I want to keep him going in the front three that has Danny Welbeck as the centre forward point. and Alexis yep. on the right. If you're going to start Giroud, I think there's much more of a case to say, all right, Alex, I'm playing Giroud today. Um, I think it might be slightly better for the balance of the team if I bring Joel Campbell in there. Um, because, you know, Joel Campbell and Olivier Giroud have, have combined um, for goals over the last couple of months. I'm not saying it's a brilliant partnership, but, you know, it, it has some form. Um, and, yeah, I think you're right. I think maybe, you know, we had a game on Thursday. You can say, well, look, I'll, you know, I'll probably put you back in for the next game against Norwich. But today I'm doing something a bit different. Um, so, yeah, maybe maybe I'll do something a little bit different. Um, but what it, what it shows you is that, I mean, you know my opinion that we've been screaming out for a player like Iwobi for three to four years, possibly since Nasri left. Um, and Arshavin never really became that secondary playmaker. Right. Um, and it's, I mean, that just reveals a gaping hole in our squad that someone like Iwobi, as well as he's played, has become this important this quickly. Um, it really shows you how much we needed a player like that and the fact that he was willing to make changes against West Brom and Sunderland, but he didn't change Iwobi. Um, and, you know, on one hand, We've, we've kind of criticised Arsene Wenger for being too conservative this year uh, and actually giving a chance to a guy like Iwobi and keeping him going. Um, you know, is that conservative or is that actually quite a brave thing to do? I suppose that's, a good, that's a good point, yeah. Just taking the young player who's earned his spot and playing him every game. I mean, it's kind of interesting if you think about it, right? Because it's the ultimate of what Arsene Wenger describes himself as. You know, he, he believes football should be a meritocracy, but then you turn around and a guy like Joel Campbell can't get a look yeah. uh, when he clearly looks like someone who could be a threat and, and has something to contribute, whereas players like Theo Walcott and Olivier Giroud don't. Um, Paul, can you understand at all why Joel Campbell has, I mean, not been totally frozen out, but essentially frozen out, especially for players that in a true meritocracy would not have earned their place ahead of him? Uh, not really. I can see why he, why he didn't start. Uh, I don't see why he didn't come on as the sub. That was, uh, and the subs generally, uh, they've he been probably a got bit a lot confusing recently. <laughs> they have it, but I mean, it's a classic case of, we don't know what we don't know. Um, I mean, he took, he will be off on 70 minutes. I think that made sense. Uh, he, he was looking tired and had ideas, but I think he actually had a pretty damn good first half. It was very much the will be, we, We've seen up till then. So, so why wasn't I, it Welbeck and Campbell instead of Welbeck and Walcott? It's a great question. I, I can't Thank see you. why it would have been. <laughs> Very proud of it. <laughs> no, I, I really don't know. Yeah. Um, uh, I mean, Walcott actually put in, I think, like two good crosses. I mean, he wasn't a complete zero, but he was nearly a zero. Um, well, uh, he, he, had that, he had that fantastic jump out of the way, the ball moment, which... I th I happen yeah. to think more has been made of that than should have been. So do I. I mean, yeah, but under geez, the circumstances, you can see why people are looking for. I can a see why people get upset. Yeah. I, I don't see why he has to go crashing into a tackle he never won. Just, but but it plays to the narrative that he doesn't care and he's he's selfish and he's playing for himself. I don't really. I think he's just kind of he's 
he's kind of mentally kind of yeah not, look i think it's also this. it's it's the perception you're right i think it's let's face it english football culture embraces the blood and thunder <clears throat> right i don't think there's going to be a lot of appreciation for someone pulling out of a tackle in favor of self-preservation oh. the thing i find just a little ironic about it is the rod that's used to beat jack wilshire sometimes is he's got to be more circumspect he has to know when to pull out of a challenge he has to know when to Think self-preservation instead of going for every ball, you know, yeah. because he was injured and then Theo does this. But, but you know, look, that that's a different debate. The fact is he's not effective on the pitch right now. He shouldn't have been on. Yeah. Uh, if Welbeck is fit, and, I mean, I guess we can assume he was fit enough to come on as a sub. He played 20 you minutes, know. Yeah. yeah. So, but certainly Campbell. Uh, I don't understand Walcott. I mean, I understand it tactically. But but it's not like we have a plan to use him. That's my biggest frustration with Walcott. He's sucked, but it doesn't look like we have a plan to use him any time we put him on the field. So that would be my my defense of him standing there with the dagger in his hand, blood dripping. <laughs> Fair enough. My um, yeah, my, go, my go only kind of theory, I suppose, on that, I completely agree that actually it does look like we're just throwing him on um, yeah. without you know too much kind of idea about. You know, I, I'd, I'd be curious to know what instructions he's given just before he goes on, other than go yeah. on and uh, try and do something. Um, yeah. But I think the only way I'm, I'm thinking of it is that Benga's made up his mind that Joel Campbell is only ever going to be a squad player at best. Whereas when you read into Wenger's comments about Theo Walcott, it sounds very much like Walcott's in, you know, last chance saloon. And that actually what Wenger's trying to do is say, look, you haven't got many more chances to impress me and, you know, show me that you've really got a future as a prominent player at this club. And that he's kind of saying, go on, show me, um, because it's coming close to crunch time. Whereas with Joel Campbell, perhaps he just thinks, well, happy to have him in the squad. He's never going to be much more than that if he wants to go in the summer and he's not happy with that. Uh, you know, I probably won't stand too much in his way. Whereas with Walcott, he's he sounds to me like he's coming to a definite decision, and he wants to not quite give him a chance. I don't think it's um, it's as kind of avuncular uh, and as nice as that. I think it's uh, go on, do something, prove me wrong, because at the moment um, I'm thinking of you know shoving you out the exit door kind of thing. So. I, that that's the only mitigation. I'm not even sure it's mitigation, to be honest. The but problem that's the only is, thing I, think of. I mean, while I don't necessarily disagree with you, we've got football matches to win. Exactly. <laughs> you know what I mean? Exactly. Like, so you'll have, you'll forgive it, me. It feels if, to me, yeah, it feels to me that he's thrown him on a, like a classic hail mary. It's like he doesn't think doesn't necessarily think Walcott deserves on form to be on the pitch. But fuck, if Walcott gets in behind, he can bury it. It's the Hail Mary pass. Unfortunately, they're not making the pass. Yeah, but um, you, you know what, Paul? I, I mean, I, I, I'm going to side with the manager in one respect here. We all have very short memories, but it's Arsene Wenger's job to not have a short memory always and, and to try to keep perspective a little bit. And I listened back to the podcast we did after the Manchester United win at home. And the one thing we all agreed on, Tim wasn't on the podcast, so it was terrible. I wouldn't recommend listening to it. Mm-hmm. Um, but but uh, James and, and Paul and I all agreed that there were a couple players we had to keep fit for the whole season. If we did, we'd win the title. 
And I think we named three players, and Theo Walcott was one of them. Um, yeah. You know, that was back at the time when we felt we had finally found a guy who could give us something up front that we didn't have with Giroud. So I, my sympathy with the manager would be that, yes, he's been poor for a while now, but Giroud has been poor for a while now. But when we were at our best this season, Theo Walcott was a big part of that. And maybe that is just stuck in the manager's mind. And he, he thinks that, that that still can happen. That magic can return. But my criticism of him is that when Theo was good, he was on the shoulder of the defender. He was get, You remember when we were getting frustrated with him for getting called offside all the time? You know, yeah. he was mm-hmm. a long way for getting called offside against Sunderland. Well, Giroud certainly did that job on Sunday. Yeah. <laughs> he had that kind and, and so, again, my frustration is I didn't see a lot of plan to get Theo in behind. When he was great with Van Persie, he was getting in behind. He was getting to the byline. He was doing cutbacks. Uh, you know, there's some great stats done on the fact that Walcott's crossing was inaccurate when mm-hmm. he played with RVP, but it was deadly. Anytime it got to RVP in the box, it was basically a goal because it was into deadly positions. It was classic risk-reward. Well, th- and so we're just, you know, you see Theo picking up the ball quite deep quite often and running at people and trying to dribble past them. At the moment, you know, sometimes he can dribble, but at the moment, confidence-wise, he's going to lose it three out of four times. You want him, you basically want him as a wide striker at the moment if he's going to play on the right, and you want him right up there, and you want to feed him. You know, Ozil was off the pitch pretty early, uh, possibly because he was frustrated as shit. That was another interesting substitute. Yeah, we're going to get to that in a second. Yeah, Um but I don't see a plan to use Theo getting in behind. And, you know, if the we used to talk about teams being afraid of Theo. They're not afraid of him at the moment. And it's not because his finishing is missing. There is no finishing because he's not getting in behind. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it's interesting, too. Can either of you think of a time, I mean, any time, this season, last season, any time in recent memory where Theo Walcott has had a, a good game when he wasn't playing center forward? No. I, I think he's sort of given up on being a winger. <laughs> um, you know, he came on with Welbeck, and he, he was playing wide, and when he's played wide, he's been useless. Um, yeah. So, you know, I, I mean... i tell you, Elliot, though, uh, so I agree with what you said. I don't necessarily buy the he's given up on being a winger, because if you look at what Wenger said about two weeks ago, he basically said, if I read between the lines... Theo's decided being a striker isn't a lot of fun and he's getting a lot of shit for it. So now it sounds like he wants to be a winger again. Well, I mean, there, I don't, I do didn't remember read that, that the same way where he said he needs to decide if he wants to be a center, a central player or a wide player. I yeah, think but it, 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 he says that, but he says it after he says he doesn't want to be a center forward anymore or yeah. something pretty damn close to it. Yeah, I mean, I think it comes down to if you're Theo Walcott and you realize you're not getting starts at center forward yeah. and there's not a very good solution on the right, you'll take and the your... the are coming and yeah, you're yeah. going into the manager's <laughs> office and saying, um, I don't like the center forward thing anymore. Can I, I play I on the wing? I on the right. Yeah, exactly. Um, let's, let's talk about... Actually, before we get to Ozil, just quick hits real quick. There were two penalty shouts for handball. Um, real oh, yeah. quick, Paul, did you think either was a penalty? Both were a penalty, neither? One. Uh, so it, it's a. Uh, I think neither were. 
the convention is because one of them is a deflection off the guy's foot, so the time travelled from foot to arm is even shorter. Uh, that that's that's definitely not a penalty, but lots of lots of pundits think the other was a penalty. Mertesackers was a penalty, but in both cases, both players had no time to get their arm out of the way. And then you get into this unnatural, unnatural position, position shift, yep. whatever the fuck that See, is. See, I think that's a huge... The funny thing is, I think ball to hand can be a penalty. It absolutely can be a penalty. If I'm standing in the box, like I'm on the cross, with both of my arms straight out, and I just stand in the middle of the box that way, and someone hits the ball into one of my arms from one yard out, that's a penalty. Because I shouldn't be standing there with my arms straight out. And the defender has some responsibility to be in a natural position that doesn't lead to him handling the ball. Tim, what did you think? Um, I th- to that point, I don't see any reason why handball should be treated any differently to a foul. You don't always mean to commit a foul. That doesn't mean it isn't one. You Great stick point. your leg out if you trip someone up. You might not mean to do it. It doesn't mean... Uh, the, the point is, where does the infringement come from? Does it come from... It's the same principle as kicking someone's leg and going down in the area a la Jamie Vardy. No, that's not handball, just kicking the ball at someone's arm. However, if they have the leg there and it's in the way kind of thing and it's sticking out, then then yes. Um, on, on this one, to be honest, I've not seen the highlights back and I certainly didn't get a good view of our one because it was right down the other end. Sure, my... there you go, playing the I was in the stadium <laughs> card. <laughs> my my impression is that the referee got it right because you either give one of them or both. Uh, you either give both neither or, or mm-hmm. both. And, you know, perfectly happy um, that he was consistent because they both look very, very similar, certainly in real time. Yeah, I, and, and I agree. The funny thing is I brought up that whole unnatural position thing. But in this case, I, I actually thought our shout for a penalty was a better one because I thought the arm position was more unnatural. It was in more of a position to try to make a blocking motion than Murtisacker's, but I, I, I think I lean towards neither being given. Uh, in any case, let's get to Ozil. And Tim, I'll start with you. And Paul, don't worry, I'll, I'll let you get to this as well. Um, 58 passes in 83 minutes. I mean, that's that's not a lot for him. Ramsey played 99. El Elneny played 87. Um Nacho, 62. Koscielny, 69. Uh, even Alexis Sanchez, who's not a high-volume passer, 54. Um, so, not a ton. And, you know, again, I'm not using that as a stick to beat him, but given mm. that he had about 54 touches, 58 passes, um, and then there was the whole shouting at Bellerin for fuck's sake thing, is... Is this again just another case of people wanting to read Mesedozo's body language because we're we have so much PTSD over what happened with Van Persie and Sask and Nasri and we're always worried we're going to lose Mesed or or do you think that there's genuinely maybe a little bit of frustration seeping into his game? Um, I think a bit of both. I think of course there's frustration. I, I would be um, I'd be livid with any player that is not frustrated with the way that Arsenal Fair are point. playing. I, I mean, that, that's affecting effort or, you know, yeah. commitment. And that, you know, that's why I am pretty annoyed at Theo Walcott jumping out of that challenge because had he won the challenge, he has an open goal. Um, and to leap out of it entirely, you know, is just that. 
could have denied that, you the chance to see him not play for England this summer. <laughs> <laughs> that should be the full stop on his Arsenal career for me. I don't think you can indulge that, particularly on top of, you know, that it's it's not exactly a first offence in that respect. I think that we've indulged that in him a little bit too long. But leaving that to one side and going back to Ozil, um, I, I thought he did look very frustrated. I think it's easy to say that, and it's true, that the movement ahead of him was, well, what movement? There was none. It was rubbish. Um, we obviously went for this were obviously the players were instructed to go for this completely predictable tactic um, of trying to roll the ball into Giroud on the edge of the area which hasn't worked for close to a year now um, and in fact Giroud's form improved when he kind of started working the channels a little bit more and basically stopped doing that because defences I remember a game we played at Burnley about this time last year and Giroud was in brilliant form and Burnley just stuck both their centre-halves on him and he didn't have a kick all game. And then we played Chelsea the next week and Chelsea did exactly the same thing. And it was just the blueprint for everyone to go, ah, he's not going to spin in behind you. So if two of you get up his backside, um, he's not able to do those lovely little layoffs. And it was just so predictable. And it looked to me like the players had been told to try and do that, but none of them had any faith in it because, you know, the passes that the likes of Ozil and even Ramsey were rolling into Giroud were painfully slow, um, like they didn't really believe in what they're doing. Giroud's in a state now where he's much, much more concerned about the defender behind him than he is the ball, um, which causes him to kind of look behind him and fall over comically um, because he's too preoccupied with that. So I, I do think there's a huge element to which Ozil is frustrated or was frustrated, particularly in this game, by the lack of movement. And I think he then became guilty of it himself. Um, and this is what I was going to go into with Ramsey. From where I was sat, in the away end at Sunderland, you're, you're right at the top tier behind the goal. So you've got, um, you're right, it's like watching Sabutio. You're like, right, you can see every single <laughs> thing on the pitch. And people were getting frustrated with Ramsey, but he had the ball a lot. And the reason I felt the criticism of him was totally unjustified was because every time he got it, there was just nowhere to, for it to move to other yeah. than El Nenny. Everyone was just stood stocked still and there were nine, ten Sunderland defenders and there was nothing he could do with it. Um, and kind of that started to happen to Ozil and then Ozil kind of came away from the creative element of the game and he started to just stand up front with the other guys and it was almost like, well, fuck it, if you, you guys aren't moving anywhere, I'm not either. And he began to do um, the kind of Walcott trick of hiding behind players. And <laughs> he just, you know, pre pretending he was like completely marked out of the game because he wasn't kind of taking a step back and trying to influence the game, which Ozil usually does when a game's tight and he's trying to influence it. Sometimes he'll just move back a bit and try and conduct things a bit further back. And he didn't. He looked, he looked fed up. He just looked like, right. I'm just going to wait for... And it, and all of the creative impetus fell on Ramsey and El Nenny then. Yeah. And these two guys were... You know, they saw a lot of the ball, so they were trying. But then they were just met with four very static... Well, maybe not Alexis. I think Alexis... Um, he's he never static. He's, he's no, probably exactly. running around somewhere right now. I don't think he's capable of static. Um, 
but and and in turn, I think perhaps he had one of those games where he tried to force it too much again. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, Özil kind of it looked to me like Özil was frustrated by um, other guilty parties, and then from about the 60th minute, decided if you can't beat them, join them. Um, and I think that's why he was taken off because Özil is never taken off at nil nil. But he looked fed up. And actually, perhaps his response to that, while maybe understandable, wasn't fantastic. That said, like I said, I think maybe we're trying to read too much into the body language because his body language is never effusive anyway at the best of times. And yeah, to your point, we know he's got a contract coming up um, and we're all worried. You know, we're all worried. Yeah, um, that's the PTSD thing, right? Exactly. So, and, and I think, you know, Every Arsenal attacking player is frustrated at the moment. You saw Iwobi's tweet after the game, right? And he internalised it and said, you know, that was a poor game from me. Um, you know, but that was that was frustration, clearly. And he's a young guy and he's trying to improve. And so he internalised it. But there must have been an element of, but man, that game was not fun to play in for an attacking player for Arsenal. And, yeah. and so I, I think there's a bit of both there i i completely understand Ozil's frustration i think we're in danger of wasting him um unless we go back to this front three that moves its ass instead of picking lamp posts um <laughs> in there uh, for him to aim at yeah but at the same time i do think he was a bit guilty of 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 fading into himself a little bit yeah you know it's, it's funny to sum up your point about movement there were three through balls attempted in the entire match and no accurate through balls played. Yeah. And I think the attempt to play through balls, even if they're not accurate, I would argue or posit is an indication of movement ahead of the creative players, right? Because yeah. that's why you make a through ball because someone's making an interesting run in behind the back four. We attempted three of them in 90 minutes, didn't complete one. The funny thing is, Ozil did have some good scoring chances early in the first half. He did make five key passes. He did complete four accurate crosses. The next closest was one, and after that, nobody did. Um, you know, he he had a, a shot. Actually, let's see. Shots. He Yeah, he had the one shot on target. I think it was blocked or, or well saved. So, you know, he, he did get involved early, but but that's the thing. He just, I, I agree. I think he sort of gave up, for lack of a better way of putting it. Um Kind of like, all right, well, if nobody else is going to run around, neither am I. Paul, I, I wouldn't want to leave you out of this debate, so or just this discussion, since it doesn't sound like we're debating it. Uh, what do you make of Ozil, it, both in terms of not just the performance, but whether you think there's anything more more to the performance? Um, well, I certainly um, felt there was a strong chance he was pulled off because... Uh, to avoid self-harm and harm to the rest of the team from a frustration standpoint. Because <laughs> it, made, it made no sense pulling, pulling him out of that team. And again, service to Walcott. If you're going to put Walcott on there and you take off uh, Ozil, you know, there it goes. Well, no, what he, what he did actually is he took Ozil off and brought on Jack Wilshire, which if you want to get super cynical, yeah. you could say that's your swap this summer. But let's not go there. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I didn't so much mean that he took him off for walkout. I oh, just mean got it. Yeah, th- there's your through balls gone. You know, if you want to get walkout in behind, you probably want to leave Ozil on the pitch if you don't have Campbell. So um, I don't know who was going to be doing it. So uh, I just, th- but I think because Ozil, if, if the manager was 
was really struggling with what to do about Ozil could explain why he got rattled with his substitutions. He was probably work, trying to work out a substitution scenario he had not pondered before and probably would have done different selections in a different order had he realized, he yes, he was going to pull off Ozil because he had a problem. And I think he uh, took him out of there because... He was kind of self-destructing from a frustration standpoint, and yeah. that isn't good for the team. No, that doesn't help anyone. Um, you know, it, it's hard to look at this season and, and not go back to a summer where we bought no outfield players. And I just wanted to ask you a quick question, Paul, because, you know, one of the debates that we had in August, and I was on the other side of the debate, but I got a lot of pretty heated responses to complaining that we didn't buy anyone. And one of the things was sort of like, you don't understand. We're at the point now where the only thing that will improve us are guys that cost 50 million pounds and play for Real Madrid, and those are hard transfers to, to pull off. Um, but Mohamed Elneny has come in in January and made a huge difference to the movement and the dynamism and the passing, the distribution from midfield, the build-up play, the possession. Iwobi's come in from nowhere, from the youth team, and made a huge difference in our movement. Our, our That secondary playmaker is Tim, I think, accurately referred to him um these are not 50 million pound players from real madrid as it turns out and i think it sort of puts the lie to the idea that the only thing that could have improved this squad was you know a 50 million pound unicorn from real madrid or bayern munich or barcelona uh what do you think paul about the fact that here we are at the very end of the run-in and guys like iwobi and el neni who weren't even here to start the year are now undroppable key elements of of the team do you think this is a greater indictment of how this squad was put together, the recruitment, the strategy by the manager, or do you think it's just how it goes at every team? There's certain organic adjustments that happen over the course of the season. Um, no, I think it's an indictment. That's probably an overly pointed uh, aggressive word. word but, but yeah. yeah, but it, it comes from that. You know, I look up the thesaurus and find something that dials it back a little bit. He, he took his best guess and he got it wrong. He went for cohesion. Uh, I don't think he ever really said there are no better players out there. Was, I guess he pretty much did, but it's kind of like with caveats, uh, allowing, if I give him the benefit of the doubt, it would be allowing for availability without being stupid money. And that would come in and fit into the team in a way that wouldn't disrupt our cohesion. And that's been proven to wrong, wrong because, as you said, um, you could say, uh, Awobi is maybe a cheat because he's a he's an Arsenal player, so he he kind of does come with the osmosis piece. But you could all you could argue it the way you did it on that one. But El Neni for sure, and if El Neni can come in in January and not play for best part of a month and a half or two months, and then be part of the system. What would three players who joined us in August? I mean, if you're worried about cohesion, bring them in in, you know, June, Hell, July. What a difference he would have made if he was here when we lost Cazorla and he could have stepped in in November, yeah. December instead exactly. of in, in March. Yeah, Park them on the on the bench for three months till they're cohesed. And, uh, you know, don't use them if you don't have to. Uh, but guess what? We always have to. So <laughs> Exactly. I mean, I don't know what I said during the debates, so I'm going to ignore that and give myself a clean sheet of paper and say, yeah, he's got this wrong. Mm -hmm. and, and I hope, uh, I kind of said this a few times, I'll give it the short version. I hope when we get to the summer um, 
and he's had the season behind him and he doesn't have to keep, you know, he doesn't have to put on a brave face to keep the team going forward. We hear from him that he gets what he got wrong because he got some things notably wrong this season. Yeah, well, so Tim, I know you were you were one who said I'm not I'm not pinning this on you, but I'm saying that you mm. believe that the manager's strategy was to opt for cohesion, that that mm. was what he was going for, um, and and it hasn't worked out. But what I would say actually maybe is he wasn't just opting for cohesion, but sort of organic improvement. That he looked yeah. at Giroud and said, "Well, Giroud can give me what he always gives me," and Theo looks like he's trending into being the kind of center forward we need. And Oxley Chamberlain is going to be a star in this league, and you know mm. he he looked at those sorts of things and said, "It's not just about cohesion." It said, "I'm going to get organic improvement from some players." Would would you say that? As much as the the system, the tactics have failed, the transfer strategy failed, where he really got hemmed into a corner by not signing anyone, is not that those players didn't improve. It's that they dramatically regressed. I mean, yeah. is that the problem? So when you make no signings, you're really, your chips are down. You are committed to those players at a minimum staying the same but hopefully yeah. improving. And because key players like Giroud and Walcott and Oxlade-Chamberlain didn't not only didn't make the improvement he expected, but regressed, is that where ultimately his, his strategy really collapsed? Yeah, absolutely. Because even if those players had stayed the same, we'd, we'd be better. Probably, yeah. <laughs> we, yeah, we'd, we'd, we'd still be in the title race. Um, whether we'd, it'd be enough to be top, I'm not sure, but we'd definitely be in the race, I think, if those three players had just you know, maintained or played to their capabilities, yeah. um, played to the level that that they're actually capable of. Um, so yeah, that's that's a big. That I think that's one area where it's failed in a massive way. Listen, he he know, he knows he needs a goal scorer. He's he he, tra- he chased Benzema all last summer. You know, he chased Suarez. He chased Higuain. Like he knows he needs a goal scorer. He knows he needs a really really good one. Um, I think. The other failure really was having three guys in the squad in good players, though they all are, Arteta, Rosicki and Wilshire, who were not able to contribute. Um, and therefore, you start having to reach down more into the depths of the squad. Um, I, I, I could understand taking a punt on one of them. Um, three of them... It's kind of irresponsible, particularly because, you know, I've said this many times before, he, he gave up on Arteta as an option in about September. So he must have been very close to it in the summer. He must have really been thinking this guy is probably not not quite there. And I think uh, Tim from 7am Kickoff wrote a piece a month or so ago where he said, actually, of the 25 squad spots at Arsenal, we only filled 21. And three of those were Arteta... Uh, Rosicki, not, not Wilshire because he's homegrown, but Arteta, Rosicki, and Flamini mm-hmm. filled three of those, and you know that's that's not that's not great. I I wonder if um, you know as well as expecting organic improvement, I wonder if you know bringing guys like Coquelin, Espina, and Bellerin into the team in the second half of last season really warmed him to this idea that, oh, look, I was able to pluck three guys from the squad and they all improved my team because they all improved as individuals and they fitted into the system. And I wonder if that really warmed him to the idea. And I think we all know that that's, that's what 
Arsene Wenger gets up for in the morning. That's the type of coach he is. He mm. loves developing players. And that's that's what's kept him in this, this job this long. That's what I think he enjoys above anything else about being a football manager. And I just wonder if, you know, the emergence of someone like Coquelin from nowhere, a young player like Bellerin, he thought, ah, oh, th- this is where this is where I'll get the edge. Um, and, you know, perhaps he saw coming some of the um, some of the kind of trouble experienced by our immediate competitors. And he thought, right, they haven't got stability, so I'm going to go I'm gonna ride the stability train as far as I possibly can. And he, yeah, he just, he's obviously misjudged it. He had a little bit too much faith that, you know, we would, we would click and we would be nice and stable and cohesive. And, you know, we never really were. And then that was exacerbated by, by injuries. Um, not many teams lose their first choice central midfield pairing and win the league. Um, mm. That's just a statement of fact, really. But um, yeah, I, you know, he, he's intelligent enough to know that he got those things wrong. I would think so. I mean, uh, go ahead. Yeah, and I think now you're looking at this summer as a consequence of that. There's a lot to do this summer now. Oh, I think yeah. there's three players for the starting eleven before we even go into the squad, um, quite possibly, that, that I think we need. And, and that's that's a lot of work to do. And there's not a fantastic amount of precedent for Arsenal buying that many players for their starting 11. To the contrary, the manager is on record as saying when you make that many changes to your starting 11, it it has a detrimental impact. uh, Indeed. Just in the cohesion. And yeah, and we've had to make that many changes to our starting 11 because of form, fitness, not being cohesive, not knowing what we're doing. We're constantly changing our starting 11. So um, I wish that we're no better off for that at all. Paul's got a hard stop because he's got to do something that is more important than podcasting. Can't imagine what that is. So we can leave it there. You know, I was going to bring up the question of whether you guys think this means we'll come fifth or fourth or third or what you think. Ah. Um, the good news is fourth. We have, fourth? Fourth, yeah. Fourth. I mean, let, let's put it this way. We may have to beat City to make that happen. If United get into a good run of form, anything other than a win at City means it won't be in our hands on the last day of the season. Um which is scary. The fact that we're even in that situation is, is, is a little bit troubling. And, and we're not going to get into what, whether the manager should stay or go. We can save that for another time. Um, and also it's kind of getting tedious at this point. Anyway, I, th- I do think it is interesting that you're watching Manchester City get a, a goalless draw with Real Madrid in the semifinal of the Champions League with Bakre Sanya and Gael Clichy at fullbacks. You know, players hilarious. that we, yeah, we kind of just cut, cut, cut loose. But anyway, okay, uh, it's been a pleasure talking about the uh, exciting adventure that was the Sunderland match. We will be back after Norwich, uh, Norwich at home. They have a terrible defense. Surely we'll run up the score there, fingers crossed. Anyway, in the meantime, we can all laugh at Spurs. There's a great montage of their sadness on the interweb. You can go look up. I want to thank Paul for being on the podcast. Paz, thanks for joining us. Thanks, guys. You can find Paul at Posn in My Pants on Twitter, and Tim is uh, on Twitter at Stilberto. You can read his fantastic writing on Ars Blog. Thanks, Tim. Thank you. My name is Elliot Smith. You should be blocking me on Twitter at Yankee Gunner. Uh, you should also leave this podcast five stars because Tim and Paul deserve it. What you could do is leave it five stars, write the nice things about them, and then tee off on me like there was one great review where they said they want to punch me in my fleshy bits. Um, 
which, you know, you could do that, but I have no nerve endings there, so I wouldn't do anything. Anyway, uh, thanks for listening. It's going to be a fun run into the end of the season as Chase for Fourth is back on. Cheers. We'll talk to you after Norwich. (laughs) 